Greetings and welcome to The House Podcast. My name is Michael and I'm so glad that you're here listening with us. The House Podcast shares the message each week from our local gathering in Central Ohio, which is a gathering of those practicing or interested in practicing the way of Jesus together in our city. In addition to the message given each week by the speaker, we also occasionally will share bonus content, such as interviews with speakers, more in-depth discussion around certain topics, and practical exercises that can help you grow as an apprentice of Jesus. The House Podcast is part of the VIA Podcast Network, which is a larger network of podcasts, all designed to help you and your community live out the way of Jesus in your context. For more information about The House or VIA, you can find us at theviacollective.com. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at thehouse.gathering. If you would like to contribute to The House financially, you can also do that at theviacollective.com. We're so glad you're here with us today, and may you be blessed by this week's message. Thank you, Father, that we can gather together in the midst of the busy holiday season. We are grateful that we can meet in this place, that we can study your life, Jesus, that we can wrestle with what it means to follow you. I pray tonight, Holy Spirit, that we would be aware of your presence. I thank you for Chip's um, sharing from his story and what you're doing in his life. I pray that it would encourage us to, to take note and to pause and to recognize when we see you at work in our life. And I pray as we kind of meet these couple weeks before Christmas that you would stir in our hearts that anticipation, that hope that you will indeed be with us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Awesome. So it's so glad to be with you tonight. Um, If you didn't know, my name is Michael. I'm really glad to be with you. Um, Tonight we're going to continue just talking a little bit about the Gospel of Matthew. Um, We've been in a series, the Gospel of Matthew and the Temptations of Jesus. And so tonight I get the third temptation. Um, It's been almost three weeks now, but Zach did a great job unpacking temptation two. And then before that, Dan, I think, unpacked temptation number one. If you want to check out those messages, you can. All you have to do is look at our podcast, The House, and you can find any of our previous messages. But we've been diving in the book of Matthew, and Matthew is kind of an account of the life of Jesus. It was actually the most popular text um, in the entire ancient world about Jesus. It was the most quoted, it was the most likely book that you would find if you were a follower of Jesus or interested in this person named Jesus. And Matthew's all about discipleship. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was an apprentice. He was a tax collector. And when Jesus came to his tax booth, he decided to leave his way of life and he followed Jesus. He became an apprentice. He recorded all of these eyewitness accounts. I mean, it must have been a crazy couple years. And then after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew began to be a witness for the resurrection. Um, Church history says Matthew went all around the world, probably all the way down, maybe even as far as India, sharing the gospel, and he ended up dying for Jesus. And so Matthew kind of represents, you know, a testimony of who Jesus was, an account. Um, And for some of us, you know, we maybe grew up in church, and we all knew who Jesus was. Um, We kind of have always had the stories of the Gospels and the stories of Jesus kind of told to us, and we don't know really how rare 
that is. A lot of times we are unaware how drowned we kind of are in spirituality, particularly Christian spirituality in the Western context. But it's actually pretty miraculous that we know anything at all about Jesus of Nazareth. And so it's kind of a crazy story that we end up with this letter written by a tax collector who lived almost 2,000 years ago. I mean, think about it for a second. If, if you wrote something that people in a random hotel halfway around the world would be talking about 2,000 years from now, 4,021. They're thinking, man, it's 4,021. We're going into 4,022. I can't believe what Chip wrote. That was wild. It'd be crazy, right? And Matthew probably had no idea that by being just a faithful witness, by writing down what he saw and what he heard, that it would impact so many people's perception of Jesus. And so Matthew kind of orchestrates his book into five blocks, and there's an introduction and a conclusion. And so we've only been in the first several chapters of Matthew, which is all the introduction, and Matthew has kind of one point. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah was a Jewish term, and it meant somebody that was going to save the people from their sins. And so he's trying to show that this Jesus character wasn't just an ordinary rabbi or teacher, but was actually the Messiah come to save them. And he does this by showing his lineage, and then he kind of sort of takes the story of Israel and he lays it over Jesus' life. And we see kind of these parallels. The Israelites came out of Egypt, and Matthew's the only writer that takes note. Jesus was a refugee. He came out of Egypt. And then Jesus was baptized, just like Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea. And then Jesus goes in the wilderness, and there's this time of testing and temptation, which is where we've been. And then Jesus is going to come out of the wilderness and give a teaching, just like Israel did, just like Moses did. And so Matthew's portraying Jesus as this new Moses and this new humanity. And so as we think, what, is it, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Which is kind of our guiding question at the house. We think that there's a lot of spirituality out there, and everybody's trying to figure out how to live. But what does it practically mean to follow Jesus? That's kind of the question we wrestle with each week. And so as we answer that question, I think we have to really wrestle with, who is Matthew portraying Jesus as? And so to pick up in our story, we have Jesus getting baptized by his cousin, and then there's this really weird phrase in Greek. It's basically Holy Spirit drove, and it's like the word for like driving cattle, drove Jesus into a ramos, or wilderness, or desolate place. I actually spent several years of my life living in the Middle East, and I've been in a lot of those desolate places, and desolate is exactly what they are. There's nothing. And so the Holy Spirit takes him to this, this place of wilderness. And it's actually probably the same wilderness that the Israelites, 2,000 years before Jesus, actually wandered through. It's the Sinai wilderness in between Egypt and Israel, what we would call modern-day Jordan. And so Jesus is in this wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then there's this, this new introduction of a new character, the tempter or the devil. 
In Greek, it's literally just the word adversary. His adversary came. Jesus had opposition. He had an adversary. He had a tempter. And so the tempter comes to him in the wilderness, and he gives him three temptations. And so we've covered the first two, so I'm just going to read them real quick to catch you up. And then tonight we're going to focus on the third temptation, which is actually the temptation for power or control. I mean, that's a temptation that was not unique to Jesus, but something we actually struggle with every day. And so the first temptation of Jesus, he's led by the Spirit, he fasts for 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry, the tempter comes and he says to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the second temptation takes place. The devil takes him to the holy city. It's a reference to Jerusalem. And sets him on the pinnacle of the temple and says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shouldn't put the Lord your God to the test. And then tonight's temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So if you want to hear those first two temptations unpacked, you can follow the podcast. Dan and Zach do a great job unpacking what those first two are about. But tonight we're going to focus on this third temptation, which is kind of on its surface, just I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world if you fall down and worship me. Which on its surface doesn't seem like something we struggle with too often. Most of us have probably never been offered all the kingdoms of the world. Um, And most of us wouldn't think it's that tempting, you know, if the devil shows up and says, worship me. Most of us would probably think, I'm not supposed to do that, right? But we're going to talk a little bit about how tempting this actually was to Jesus. But before we do that, I do want to highlight Jesus really clearly makes this temptation a worship issue. Satan says, fall down and worship me. But Jesus' response comes right out of Deuteronomy. And Jesus makes it a worship issue. I am only supposed to worship God. A lot of us that maybe grew up in church, when we hear that word worship, we think maybe music. Like we're going to have a teaching tonight, and then Tanache is going to come sing. That's the worship part. But the word worship actually means to ascribe worth to. It's whatever we give meaning and significance to. And so the temptation to worship the wrong thing is all around us. Some of the most common worship temptations all around us we would call idolatry. Some of the classic ones are beauty. Um, It's interesting, the ancients actually had gods named after these, Aphrodites. We would never say like, man, I stood in the mirror for an hour this morning and really worshipped Aphrodite. But it's the same idea, the idea I worship how I look. I worship beauty or love. We have mammon, which is the god of money, right? I really worship having more. It's not a question of 
if we worship, it's just what we worship. And so the temptation is to worship the wrong thing. Power, which is at this one, the God of Mars. It's this idea that if I had power and control, I could do good. Or at least it starts that way, right? It's the temptation to seize control, to have power. And so anything we worship, anything that has significance that we put above God, anything that is ordinary, that we make extraordinary, is a way in which we give worship. And everybody worships. We are meaning machines as human beings. No matter what we say we believe, we live as if certain things have meaning and certain things have more meaning than other things, and we are always going to elevate certain things. We're always going to decide what matters the most, and that's what we're going to worship. And so the temptation tonight is all about the devil coming to Jesus and asking, wanting him to worship power, to worship power, to say that if you had power, everything would be all right. If you had power, you could restore the whole world. And this is going to be tempting for Jesus because it's actually the very reason he came. And so as we dive in, what does this temptation teach about Jesus is going to be one level, and then what does this temptation teach about us is going to be the second level. And so we're going to start just with Jesus. And I know a lot of times when we read the Bible, we immediately go to application, or what does this mean for me? You know, sometimes we're in a Bible reading plan, and we're in Exodus, or somewhere boring, and we quickly are like, this doesn't apply to me, and we jump to something that like quickly applies to us. But I think it's really important to remember why Matthew's writing this. His purpose for this is not a self-help guide. He wants you to see who this Jesus is. And so we're going to start with, what does this mean to Jesus? Why does this passage make us or cause us to want to follow Jesus more? And I think we see a beautiful parallel. I think what Matthew does here is just brilliant in the retelling of this story. But we see in Jesus, Jesus succeeds where we fail. And he kind of succeeds on two levels, and we're going to talk about both. But in the beginning of the Bible, we have this wonderful story of God making the heavens and the earth and Adam and Eve, and there's people, and we're innocent. We haven't screwed up yet. We aren't broken yet. And we're in what's described as paradise or a garden or innocence. And then there's a tempter that comes. And in Genesis 3, we see the tempter comes. And of all the things that we are given permission to do, there's one thing that we're not allowed to do. Because love always gives us a choice. And the one thing they couldn't do is they couldn't take and eat. And there's this tree in the middle of the garden that's super pleasing to the eyes, and the tempter comes to them and wants them to eat. And the food was delightful, and it's actually the same temptation that Jesus faces. The first temptation of Jesus is to eat something. Eat something you're not supposed to eat. That in and of itself is not bad, but is only bad because of this context. And then the second temptation of this is very similar. In the garden, he says, you surely won't die. 
which is the second temptation. Jump from the temple. You surely won't die. It's the same thing. And then the third temptation. He says, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God, which is the temptation for power. All the kingdoms will be given to you. So in the very scenario where we failed, Jesus succeeds. And it's not just this garden scenario, because the garden scenario, it's a paradigm. It keeps happening over and over in human experience. And so the next time we see this sequence is actually the people of God in Exodus. And we've kind of touched on this before, but in the Exodus wilderness, we have the same three temptations. It's interesting because the very words that Jesus quotes come straight out of the Exodus wilderness. So they are grumbling and they're saying to God, feed us. And God, they really literally want that first temptation, turn rocks into bread. And God does. But Jesus refuses. They're grumbling and they want water and they test God at Massa. That's where Moses gets angry and just hits the rock and that's where he doesn't end up going into the promised land. But it's the site of testing. In fact, the verse Jesus uses in the temptation when he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test, the full verse, he's quoting Deuteronomy, the full verse says, do not put the Lord your God to the test like you did at Massa. The exact same place where they're failing is where Jesus succeeds. And then the third temptation, they're afraid of God and they build a golden calf. At the pinnacle of the wilderness experience, while Moses is on Mount Sinai and God is giving them a word from heaven, the people are down below, and the text literally says they thought Moses was taking too long, so they asked Aaron to take their gold and give them something to worship. And so Aaron does. And it's really interesting. Aaron actually says the same thing Adam says when he has to explain Eve. Adam says, the woman you gave me did it. And Aaron says, when he has to give an account, these people made me throw their gold in the fire and out came a calf. Like I had nothing to do with it, God. And it's the same temptation. And they fail but Jesus succeeds where we fail. So we see in Christ a new human, a new Israelite, a new person succeeding where we have failed. The temptations we give into, he has overcome. The temptations deeply appeal, though, to Jesus' motivation. The very reason Jesus came was to redeem and restore all the people of the earth. And what is he offered? All the people of the earth. He's offered what he came for. He's offered the kingdom that was his. The problem is it's a kingdom without a cross. It's a shortcut to what his destiny actually is. And I think for some of us, we, we might nod at that. Yeah, it's a shortcut. I know I shouldn't take a shortcut. How I get there matters as much as where I go. Yep, yep, yep. But this is a real temptation for Jesus because Jesus was a good king. I mean, think about it for a second. There would have never been a Hitler, a Mussolini, a Genghis Khan. Human suffering would have stopped 
if he gave in to this temptation. He would have ruled all the peoples of the earth and our suffering would have ceased. He would have brought heaven now. All the pain, all the people that have lost loved ones, all that's wrong, he would have made right. He would have been a great king. Imagine the appeal to Jesus. I gave up everything to come down here to make this right. And now I just have to say the word. I just have to fall down. And I receive, I receive my inheritance. I receive everything. But he says no. He resists the devil. And this actually speaks so deeply to Jesus. We can see because this is the one temptation that actually comes back to Jesus multiple times. There's actually three accounts, but we're just going to talk about one. By the way, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I couldn't help but throw this in. This is the temptation of Boromir, right? It's the temptation to use the ring. Why, why can't we just use it and make Grandor great? I know, that was nerdy, but you don't have to raise your hand if you're related to that one at all. Um, but this was extremely real to Jesus. In fact, it, later on in before we get to this, but we know it's extreme to Jesus because he uses this command, be gone, Satan. And in Greek, it's more emphatic than in English. Probably the closest equivalent we have is like sending somebody a, like a text in all caps. Like you just don't do that, like, or an all caps email. We have some, I have a coworker that always sends all caps emails and it gets your attention, I'll say that. Um, but like, this is strong, be gone, Satan. And this temptation actually comes up later in Matthew. Peter is the one who's guilty here, but Jesus begins to explain to his disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. And then imagine this. Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's the same thing. Peter wants Jesus to be the Messiah without the cross. Never, Lord. And Jesus does the exact same response. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus doesn't play around with it. He doesn't entertain the temptation. Both times in Greek we would say, like, he shouts, enough, enough. I'm not even going to entertain the thought of this. Get behind me, Satan. He refuses. In John's gospel, it comes up again when the people, after the feeding of the 5,000, it says they try to make him king, and Jesus literally runs away. It's too close to his heart. He can't even entertain this temptation. It's his destiny, but it's not the path he's supposed to take. And so Jesus resists this temptation. He refuses the easy route, and instead he takes what one writer calls downward mobility of the soul. Um, that comes from a guy named Henry Nouwen. Has anybody ever heard of Henry Nouwen? Kind of a famous Christian writer in the 21st century. Henry Nouwen was a professor at Harvard and Yale. Um, he was a follower of Jesus, a Catholic, and he was a prolific writer. And about you know, two-thirds of the way through his life, he had sort of an encounter with God, and he realized that in order to really follow Jesus, I need to give up all this prestige. And so he left Harvard and Yale, he resigned his post, he joined a community um, called La Arch, or La Arc, and it was a community for mentally handicapped people. 
And so he served there, and he cared for people that couldn't wipe their own butts, couldn't get dressed, and he did that the last 25, 30 years of his life. And in some of his best writings, which came at the end of his life, he over and over again says, I really met Jesus when I let go of all of it, when I let go of all the prestige, all the power, and I emptied myself. And that's, that's what Jesus did. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, not because he wasn't equal with God. He didn't consider it something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself. And this temptation is the temptation to fill ourselves, not to empty ourselves. And so he resists it and he stays empty. The temptation for power has probably shaped history more than any other temptation. If you think of history, it's the, mostly the history of nations in conflict and moving borders and violence. And all of it kind of comes down to this desire for power, this temptation to have power. And while that's true on the macro level, and if you read a history book of the last 20 years or the last 10,000 years, you would find the same thing, power-hungry people shaping history. It's also true on the personal level. It's also true that each one of us are tempted. It's easier to have power than it is to love. It's easier to try to control than it is to let go. It's easier to manipulate than it is to have the posture of humility where we don't insist on our own way. And so this temptation comes to all of us. So what does this teach us about ourselves? A couple things. One, there's a story at the end of John's gospel that I think is really, really interesting because I think it, it shows us a glimpse of human nature. Um, the way the story goes is Jesus has risen from the dead and they're on a beach eating fish and Peter kind of goes for a walk with Jesus and John's a little bit behind them. And as Peter is on his walk with the resurrected Jesus, Peter asks Jesus what's going to happen to John, um, which is interesting because I think all of us kind of have that question, right? Most of us are not just worried about ourselves and our relationship with God. We're usually preoccupied a little bit, at least a little too much, with somebody else. And so Peter really wants to know what's going to happen. And for a little while in the conversation, Jesus just ignores him. But then finally, Peter persists a little bit. What's going to happen to John? And then Jesus says to Peter, he tells Peter how he's going to die. He says, when you were a kid and you couldn't take care of yourself, that's how it's going to be when you're old. And he says he explained this to him so he would know the way in which he was going to die. But it's this idea that we want to mingle in the affairs of others, that we're not content with just God and us. Where are we? What are we dealing with? We are so fascinated by other people. We want to know, God, what are you doing in my wife's life right now? God, what are you doing in my friend's life right now? Do you need my help, God? Do you need me to point out a few things you should be doing? Do you need me to pray for a few things I think you should be doing? Right? We're so interconnected, and it's so, so hard to not control. And it's so, so hard. You know, we laugh a little bit when we read that line, Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him. But most of us, in gentler terms, have done just that with God. Most of us have an agenda for God. We have a job description, and if he doesn't live up to it, we think something's wrong with him. Or we maybe even doubt if he's real. 
we take God aside all the time to correct him or to tell him what we think. Because the truth is that what he's doing often doesn't align with what we think he should be doing. Love often doesn't look like power. And Peter thought that Jesus was going to come in power. He thought he was going to conquer Rome. He thought he was going to conquer his enemies. He thought he was going to be on a white horse. And he honestly thought he wouldn't be too far behind Jesus. Maybe number two, settle for number three at worst, right? That's what he honestly thought. And a lot of us, that's kind of the role spirituality takes in our lives. God's going to conquer my enemies. God's going to make sure nothing too bad happens to me. And of course, I can't be number one. God's number one. But there's going to be a good dose of favor. I'll be number two or number three, right? And we have this desire for God to use his power to control, particularly the things in our life that we can't control. And so we're tempted with power and we're tempted to exercise control. And as I was thinking of examples of this, there's so many examples of this. There's millions of them we can think of in our everyday life. There's little things between spouses I'm learning in my first year and a half of marriage where it's like, wow, I spend a lot of time managing how I look or I spend a lot of time influencing kind of subtly here and there. We have so much energy and effort in controlling. We control our reputation by how we talk. We control what people think about us. We control, we control, we control. Especially when we're given things we're responsible for. We feel like we have to micromanage. We have to keep our hand on it. And it says Jesus did not grasp, but he emptied himself. And in this temptation, the devil takes what Jesus let go of and he puts it right back in front of him. He had all the kingdoms of the world. In that garden, they were like God. He takes what they had and what they had released, and he puts it right back in front of him, and he says, just, just take it. Just take it. Don't trust. Just make it happen. Just make it happen. And it appeals to us. Henry Nouwen has this quote that I love about this very topic. He says, one of the greatest ironies in the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation to power, political power, military power, economic power, or moral and spiritual power, even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power, but emptied himself and became as we are. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? Maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. And we all face this temptation. So as followers of the way of Jesus, we are invited like Jesus to resist to resist the temptation to insist on our own way, to resist the temptation to control in the name of love rather than serving and actually loving and releasing control, to not be God but to love God. And I think there is a key to how this resistance looks. And I think we see it as we wrap up right here in the life of Jesus. How do we resist this temptation? Jesus actually tells us. He says, 
worship the Lord your God. What that word means, like we already said, is ascribe more worth to God than to this thing. Ascribe more worth to God. And worship is often not something, the act of worship is something we can choose to do, but worship is often a revelation. It's a response to the beauty, the truth, and the goodness we've seen. And so if we are going to resist, we have to see something better in what Jesus is offering. We have to see something better. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He sees that worshiping God is better than being handed his dreams because he trusts that God's good. And what's crazy is that's exactly how the story ends. In Matthew 28, the last lines of Matthew's Gospels, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. He gets everything Satan offered and all authority of heaven. What God had planned to give his son was what was better than what was offered to him. And in every temptation, it really boils down to, do you believe there's a better than? A better than what feels so appealing in the moment. A better than what seems so good in the moment. And there was a better than for Jesus. There was something he, God planned on giving. The Father planned on giving the Son all the nations of the earth and authority in heaven. And in this moment of temptation, though, there was a shortcut. And it seemed like the shortcut would have given him everything, but the shortcut would have left him short of everything. He would have had all the nations of the world, but he wouldn't have had any authority in heaven. He wouldn't have had any authority. It was a temporal thing. What he thought he could have grasped actually would have meant nothing. And that's the illusion of temptation. You are offered something better. And when you worship, you discover that. When you posture yourself to receive rather than to grasp life, when you let go rather than control, you realize there's going to be a moment when you're given something better than you ever could have taken. Your accomplishments will never add up to what you can receive as a gift. And that's the offer when we resist. So the real question becomes, can we or do we believe that God has something better? As we kind of wrap up these three temptations, the temptation for food or whatever fill-in-the-blank desire physically that you need or that you feel like you need in the moment, or the desire to test God, to prove yourself, to prove God, to put him in a box, to manage God, or whether it's the desire for power, or whatever temptation you're going through, it kind of boils down to this. Do you believe God has something better for you? Do you have to grasp it? Is it the only way you'll be satisfied? Because if you grasp it, and if you think it's the only way you're going to be satisfied, you've decided to fall down and worship something else. But the way of Jesus is the invitation in the wilderness when it doesn't look like much to say no to the offer and to believe that there's something better promised. 
Jesus chose a cross over the kingdoms of the earth. And in doing so, he suffered. And when you say no and you resist the temptation, there will be suffering. But it's worth it. It's worth it. In fact, Jesus said, if you follow my way, if you resist, you will suffer. You will have your own cross. You will have your own death of sorts. But it is worth it. Because on the other side of your suffering, there is resurrection and life that you could have never grasped for yourself, that you could have never achieved for yourself. And so is there something better or have you settled? That is the temptation in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for overcoming where we have failed and for making it possible for us to follow you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just acknowledge that in my own strength, I can't copy you, Jesus. I can't resist the devil like you did, Jesus, just in my own strength, but we are not alone. You are with us, and you have made us one with you so that we can overcome with you, Jesus. We can cling to a better promise we can empty ourselves. Lord, I just acknowledge that all around us, the temptation for power and control is so real. And Lord, you taught us to pray, lead us away from temptation. And so where temptation is inevitable, we ask that you strengthen us and give us that faith that there is something better. But we also ask you, God, tonight, whatever the temptations each person in this room is facing, I pray that you would lead them away from those temptations. You would lead them away from the testing. I thank you, God, that you are the victor and that we can follow you into the better things. It's in Jesus' name, amen.